Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest today is Shannon Weber, a social entrepreneur. Shannon has launched sexual health initiatives impacting thousands. She believes we thrive at the intersection of empathy and resilience. Shannon Weber, you're very welcome to the show. It's a delight speaking with you today. I want to start with a question I ask some of my guests, and that is, what is your superpower? Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting for me to be here. What is my superpower? You know, I'm a social worker by training, and social workers are trained in systems approaches. And my superpower is, is that I have an ability to connect with people at on the one-on-one level for sure. But right away, I want to take it to the meta or macro level and figure out how and if I really see things in these systems and trying to create change, which comes from that training around how do you see individuals and systems. Okay. So your main area of interest is infectious disease. What event or experience got you interested in that area? You know, that's a great question. So I'm actually super interested in starting things. I really love building uh, things that create change in the public health or social justice sector from the ground up. And so there was a position um, available to start a new national hotline at the University of California at San Francisco for clinicians with questions about HIV and pregnancy. And I took this job believing that I would do it for a short time and then I'd get back out in the field, so to speak. And what happened is that I fell madly in love with the people, the work, and the opportunity to create change. So in perinatal HIV, it's this intersection of reproductive and sexual health. And I'm deeply fascinated by that. And there's so much important work for us to do. And so then I've stayed in this HIV field now for, I guess, about 14 years doing a number of different projects. There must be some great stories given the, you know, the difficult situation that you're talking about, HIV and pregnancy. Can you remember any particular story that kind of consolidated your ideas about where you are going to go with this? Yes. So the thing is, and people often say this, this is a difficult story. The reality is, is that it's a beautiful moment. And what are people willing to do during pregnancy um, to create change. So it's this huge opportunity. You have this short window of time. The system often also provides additional resources during this time. And so even for someone who has a lot of challenges that they're facing, who've experienced a lot of trauma, for example, how they will rally and how the system will rally during pregnancy is an example to me of what's actually possible in the rest of life. And so it's been wonderful for me to see how um, women and their providers will really come together during that time and create great change. In fact, there's in the San Francisco, there hasn't been a, a transmission from a mom to her infant since 2005. We have a plan for eliminating perinatal HIV in the U.S. So you can see how these moments are, create this opportunity for great success. So I'm a family physician, and you know, we talk when we talk to one another as family doctors, we talk about. Uh, stories. We talk about, you know, let me tell you about this guy that came to see me, blah, blah, blah. So you, I'm asking you the same question. Tell me the story of somebody who used the service that you're talking about, the hotline, and whose life you then made a difference to. Great. So I'm going to tell you the story about 
a woman named Poppy. And she first reached out to me in probably 2007. She's a woman who's HIV negative and her partner is living with HIV and she wanted to have a baby with him. And she wanted asking me if I would help her find a provider who would support them in this goal that they had. And in 2007, we did not have PrEP, the HIV prevention pill. We also did not know that we, like we do now, that treatment as prevention works. And so it was this whole journey with her of finding different providers to talk to and who would support her in this goal. As that was happening, then research became available and we were able to say, wow, this study has just come out. How about this apply to your situation? And then being able to find those providers who would then support her with getting on PrEP and later they conceive a baby. And then later her realizing that treatment as prevention works for her and then considering having another baby as well. And this is a relationship that lasted over five or six years. And being able to connect her with various providers. She became an advocate, spoke in front of the legislature, started a blog so that other people like her wouldn't feel so alone. Right. And where where has she gone from there? I mean, she's she's been an advocate. She's now got presumably two children. She has one. They think about having the second child, but haven't decided um, to do that. She still uses the assumed name Poppy. And does less online now. I find this often with folks though too, once they get their goal, so they'll have their baby. You don't often hear from them in the same way that you do anymore. You may not have that same kind of longitudinal story that you might otherwise. Um, but she made a huge contribution, including helping to change the law here in California and helping so many men and women to see that they're not alone. Yeah. In what way did she change the law in California? Yeah. So when she first was asking this question, there was a ban in California that the sperm from a man living with HIV could not be used for insemination. And in 2007, since that was before PrEP, the HIV prevention pill, and before we need treatment as prevention, really what people were suggesting is that people used assisted reproductive technologies. And in fact, that might be an option if people want that. And of course, if you're a same-sex couple or you're a single parent by choice, you still need assisted reproductive technology to support you. But with the knowledge that we now have, that's not you know exactly necessary. But nonetheless, at the time, that was the only way. And so she went before the legislature and she said, hey, it's my body and it's my choice. And this is my relationship. And I should be the one to choose whether or not to take the risk, not you. And so that law was changed and like really helped pave a new way for people affected by HIV to have babies. How were you part of that journey? I mean, she clearly reached out to you for support, but were there other ways in which you supported her? It's so much not unlike you right now helping me to tell a story. I did the same for her. So what was it like to have a safe space to talk about? I would share with her about other people who were calling on the phone and what I'm hearing from them and her being able to sort of practice having this relationship with me where she could be her full self. Um, And then if I would go with her to different interviews with the media or talking with providers and this sorts of things. So giving her that like unbiased, non-judgmental support so that she could tell her story. HIV is really being tackled very effectively thanks to the work that you and, and others are doing. What other healthcare issues do you think are likely to be problematic in the years ahead? For people affected by HIV or do you think generally? Whichever direction you want to go. 
Well, I think as it relates to HIV, so we, you're right that we do have the science now essentially to end the epidemic. So we know treatment as prevention works and we have HIV prevention pill called PrEP. And there's even more innovations in the pipeline in both, both of those areas. And so what's left? And what's left is the social determinants of health and structural racism. And so we see these underlying issues, and I've heard so many folks talk about this on your podcast um, as I've been listening to it. So these things that we grapple with across diseases, they're not disease-specific, but it's housing and it's uh, mental health and substance use related to trauma and then the collective trauma over people's lifetimes. These are the things that we're really grappling with as a system that when you're individually disease focused, you, you still have that as the underlying issue. And that is really where we are with HIV. Yeah, it's almost like it's become an exemplar problem, which then you can explore all of these other much more difficult issues, but within the context of HIV. Correct. And those much more difficult issues take a different level of funding and research and support to change. And I think that people get excited maybe about this. I, you know, oh, we can end the epidemic of HIV and perhaps with other diseases as well. And what's it like when we think, how are we going to end the housing crisis? How are we going to, you know, mitigate the level of trauma that people have experienced and how that's in, impacting their healthcare. And thank goodness there's brilliant people working on that as well. But those are the real challenges of our time. Mm. Kind of reminds me of what, you know, David Rakel said, one of our earliest guests on the show. And he said he did a, a study on homeless people. And when he asked them, what's the thing that could change your life the most? He was expecting, oh, a new house and a new car and whatever else. And he said the two things they wanted were a pair of shoes and good dental care. But it kind of makes you want to cry, you know, because it's so simple and yet also, yes, it's so profound. Yes. What do you feel is the most important thing that could help improve patient outcomes in the U.S. in particular, but, but elsewhere around the world? I think it's very related to this conversation we're just having now, which is how do we build our skills as providers? How does the system build the skill? And then how do we support patients? and having the skill to talk about these social determinants health and these structural barriers. So we don't really have the script, so to speak, to talk about it. And patients don't have that information to advocate for themselves, right? To raise their hand and say, hi, I come from this zip code, or this is my lifetime trauma. Did you know that? And I need to advocate for myself in a different way. You're seeing that now some with Black maternal health in the U.S., where Women are getting more information. They're coming forward and advocating it for themselves. But we really need ways that we can talk about those very hard problems that are in front of us, even while we don't yet have the solutions for how we're going to fix it so we can find our way forward together. Mm. And do you think that this is a question of government policy or do you think this is something that we need to now take control over the outcomes as providers and as, as patients even? You know, I think it's a great question. In the end, it's going to take all of those pieces changing, right? And we can't wait for someone else to do it first. So I think we need to definitely iterate in these patient-provider relationships, or if we have a clinic or we're running a hospital or whatever it is that's our role, like what's that brave step we're going to take into that space where we don't know the answer? 
create, you know, and, and try it and make mistakes and share. And then absolutely it has to be tackled at the policy level and at the funding level, because if we aren't getting funding about research and evaluation around these structural issues and social determinants of health, then in the end, we can't support the providers and patients with those details. So what is the most exciting thing on the horizon that you think will make a difference? The most exciting thing on the horizon? Well, one of the things that I get very excited about, I'm not sure if it's the most exciting thing, but I am super excited about the way technology provides an opportunity for us to scale and to disseminate and to be more agile in the way that we learn things. So one of the, the projects that I'm focused on right now is called pleaseprepme.org. And it's an online resource for the HIV prevention pill where we do online chat. And so after we built a directory and we built resources, then we said, are there people seeking information online? And if so, can we answer their questions? Can we do it in a really sex positive way that can people be anonymous and answer their questions? And it's super successful model. And so I think that is a very exciting way to think about how do we leverage technology to connect with people that are not already in care? How do we leverage technology to share these best practices and lessons learned as they come out and even kind of practice live online as if it's almost a whiteboard and we're able to say, oh, I tried this. It did not work. Scratch it out. Let's, you know, try this new way of being. I think there's so much more that we can do. Uh, There's so much being done around kind of the infrastructure for data around electronic medical records and these sorts of things and apps. And I think there's huge opportunity within that digital space then to think about connecting the people and the dots. And all of almost all of our guests have said exactly that, that technology is part of the solution. But if you listen to people like Fiona Kerr, who, who's a professor here in South Australia, she says that we still need the human touch, that whilst we have technology, we need some kind of human contact because that's how our brains are wired. Yeah, she's genius. I saw her speak at the Compassion Revolution Conference a few weeks ago, and she's 100% correct. And so then I would say, how do you take Fiona and disseminate that beauty and that gem? And it's still, you know, through technology. And how do you create empathy and human touch through chat or voice-activated information seeking for people who haven't already come into Fiona's clinic? Because we do have those people who are not already in care or they're looking online for information. but I am so glad you brought that up because empathy and connection has 100% got to be underneath all of this or it will not succeed. And I guess the second challenge is the privacy challenge that whilst we give away our information all the time online, some of that information, as we know, can be used for nefarious ends. I think it's, it's yes, it's actually frightening. I think the movie, um, The Great Hack that just came out, really helps exemplify that. And those of us who are doing work in the digital space, I think we have to just sit with that constantly. Is this getting closer to trust or less away from trust? Because that's part of that empathetic response to folks. And it is something that we have to absolutely 100% keep in mind. So what would you like to see happen sooner rather than later? You know, In the space that I'm working in with HIV and sexual reproductive health, I would like to see people to have sex and babies when, where, and how they want to. I think that the stigma that we have around sex uh, and not normalizing sex as a way to have communication, the many ways in which we judge other people and we judge our own selves for our desires 
are really holding us back. And so I think like if I could make a magic wand and, and that could just be a normalized thing, I would love to come up and go, and go to work, except that I might not have work to do anymore because <laughs> so many of the problems are because of the judgment and stigma that exists around the way that we actually all have in common this innate desire to connect through sex, but that we have so much stigma and judgment about it. So how do you think that will come about? Because you know, you're right, you don't have a magic wand that's going to achieve that. But in some ways, you've started that journey in dealing with the most difficult situation, which is HIV and sex. Because the, the, when you put the two together, the word taboo screams at you, doesn't it? It does. And isn't that also the, uh, the way they sell us everything in marketing is around sex. So it just goes back to this whole mystifying thing to me. It's like, that's the underlying way everything is sold. And yet there's some taboo. So I think you asked a great question earlier, which illuminates part of this. You were like, hey, is this a policy thing or is this a provider thing? And so I think you see a number of ways in which these changes are being made as we work to decriminalize um, homosexuality and same-sex um, love and marriage around the world. So that all helps to really bring bring that forward. I think there's a lot of work being done around reproductive rights that, that helps to do that too. But there's much more that we can be doing in the healthcare space around it. So it's still interesting to me how many providers have a hard time talking about sex and then how many of us as humans have a hard time talking about our own sex lives. So there's a lot of work that we can do on the individual level to normalize it and I like to bring it up as often as, as possible. I mean, my poor kids at the dinner table, you know, they're like, how many people do this? And I'm like, well, good. I hope everyone soon that this will just be a normal conversation that people are talking about this. Like they talk about math and English and wouldn't that be a better way for us to engage with each other than the way things are happening now, which is really keeping us apart. Yeah. I mean, here's a comment rather than a question, I guess, and that in the 30 years that I've been a doctor, the same conversations have gone around and around this very topic. This is something we've never become comfortable with, certainly not as healthcare providers. You know, the minute that granddad says, mentions that he could possibly be having sex, the conversation suddenly swaps to some other topic in the medical, the side effects of medication or something, rather than talking about that which, uh, you know, is so close to his heart at that time. I know. And I just want to go, good job, granddad. That gives me some inspiration. It's going to keep on for the rest of us. Maybe that needs to be a screening question when you get into medical school, you know, not to send your MCAT scores, but just like, how much do you like to talk about sex? I'm, jo- I'm joking, of course, but there could be whole mod- modules helping people get comfortable with it. And think about how much you, these scripts that we give back to the patients are about them going back and talking about sex with their partners and, you know, protection and family planning and all these sorts of things, but we can't even do it ourselves. I must tell you a funny story. So yesterday I visited a lab that's doing some very, very exciting things here in Melbourne. And they were saying, the chap was saying, well, you know, we now have a mattress that monitors your respiratory rate and your pulse. And this is the problem they have with that. So, you know, it's basically keeping an eye on older people. So you have this mattress in the house and it keeps Mm -hmm. an eye on them. And, you know, when you think, oh my goodness, there's an aberration in their pulse that someone's alerted to go in and investigate. And it says, imagine then if you've got an older person who's having sex and suddenly their pulse goes from 60 to 80 to 100. He says, you know, the ambulance pulls up outside (laughs) 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 and and catches the couple, as it were, 
at it. <laughs> yeah, we have we have a little gap in the user journey here. Yes. We need to revisit. <laughs> yes, that, that's exactly what he was saying. I love it. I love it. Then we need to go back and ask those older people, how would you want, like, do you get a turn off, but you know, you turn it off or, or, you know, like what, what's the thing? And, and again, like, may we all be having that opportunity. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's exactly the question that the, uh, that he was posing. He was saying that, you know, this is a time when we've got to look at the user experience and we're not there yet. Technology is fantastic and it's allowing us to monitor and assess, monitor our every move. But of course, that needs to be designed around making it fit for purpose. And, and this was a good example with, with the mattress as you... As, privacy as, button. Okay, you go back and tell them, they just need to put a little privacy button. Yeah, for sure. See? Privacy. <laughs> I'm back now. <laughs> okay, so what one piece of advice would you offer healthcare providers or designers, whether they work in Baltimore or Brisbane? Okay, my one piece of advice is do not stop. That design is the future of all these better systems and care and that it takes so much guts to do this dreaming, this designing, this launching, and then sustaining these ideas. It takes so much courage and energy. And I just, I mean, I was so thrilled listening to your podcast and inspired by the work people are doing. And I want like this, have this rallying call that we should just keep going and not be afraid to fail and fail forward and to just pick ourselves up and keep doing it again. Because to me, this is what the future of healthcare is. And this is how we're going to create equity and justice in healthcare. And looking back on your illustrious career today, uh, Shannon, what would you, how would you summarize it? What do you think that you've learned and contributed? When I look back, the one of the themes I see is that I'm deeply fascinated with how we create connection in small moments. So I ran a crisis hotline in Houston and then this hotline for clinicians. And now I'm working to connect with people over chat, which is something somebody can click out of all the time. And what I'm astounded and humbled and thrilled by is the power that we have in these small moments to create change. If we have the information and the structure, the resources available to do it. And if the person who's sitting there, whether that's the provider, a volunteer, a navigator, whomever it is, has what they need to deliver that, that really in these small intersections of crossing paths with each other, that we can make a difference. Shannon Weber, it's been a joy speaking with you. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.